Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. It's Jim Cramer here. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Don't miss a minute of the action. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber and Mike Santoli at the New York Stock Exchange. Kramer has the morning off. Stocks are looking to reclaim some of Thursday's losses as Fed Chair Powell speaks in an hour. Plenty of corporate results to wade through. Dell, Gap, Peloton, Workday. We're going to hear from Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester in a few moments. And we will keep our eye on developments out of Afghanistan after yesterday's tragic attack. Obviously, it's been about the Fed for most of the morning so far. Uh, and the data, Mike, as uh, as as Joe was just talking about, sort of points directionally to a slowdown in yeah. spending and PCE deflator up 4-2. Yes. And the markets obviously have been, you know, hesitating in, you know, in the face of what seems like uh, the ingredients of a slowdown. Economic data have been missing a little more than they've been beating in the last couple of weeks. That's a change in tone. Uh, and just the way the market is traded, right? You had this bounce in some of the economically cyclical stuff earlier this week. It seemed like maybe we were, you know, the pendulum was swinging. And then yesterday unwound a little bit of that. So I don't think it's very decisive in terms of where the market uh, really thinks the July, August numbers are. It's a lot about, uh, you know, how we get through this, what the beginning of September looks like. And, um, you know, bond market, pretty calm. Uh, credit markets not giving you, uh, not sending up any flares, really. So it is a lot about just trying to, you know, get through, honestly, the Jackson Hole and Powell and see if that changes the equation much at all. Yeah. I wonder, are you surprised by the level of sort of unanimity and commentary from Bostic. And we're going to see what Mester says in a moment. But yeah. Harker and all of the ones we heard yesterday, it's like, let's get going. Yes. Um, obviously, we're hearing, we've mostly been hearing from people who kind of were there already. But yes, I think it is a little bit surprising that given the fact it's been a bit of a split uh, committee or at least people, but they're differing on, I think, some of the shadings of timing and exactly when we get going. And why is that? I think that there's a window. I mean, like it, things have been good enough. Uh, employment is, has, has held up well enough that if you project ahead and this takes you six or eight months, once you start tapering to get down uh, to where you want to go in terms of sunsetting the bond buying program, uh, you want to make sure the economy is not already hitting a lot of headwinds. So I think that probably explains part of it. Honestly, I think there's another piece of it, which is. I don't think Fed officials love having to articulate what the $120 billion a month is supposed to be doing. Right. Right. We're no longer stoking demand. We're no longer trying to calm the market function, uh, you know, kind of stresses that were out there. And so you'd rather just not have it if it's not doing anything tangible right now. Yeah. Uh, but there is another element as well, which is called the Delta variant. And that continues oh, yeah. to be sort of the key in, in some ways in terms of their view, perhaps in timing. But of course, none of us really fully can uh, anticipate what's coming. Although while cases, I guess, Carl, are at highs, at least since the height of the pandemic, they are starting to level off a bit in terms of at least the increase. Yeah, that's been a key number. Uh, Caseload in the U.S. now up 11 week on week. Uh, Two weeks ago, it was growing 30 week on week. 
So you do want to see that second derivative decline. Uh, interesting piece in the journal this morning about companies getting more forceful about requiring GM yesterday saying, look, we want to know you have, you're required to yeah. give us at least your status. Delta, of course, uh, Delta, Delta Airlines, that is, earlier in the week. And, uh, and then this Israel real-world study where they find that natural immunity, meaning if you were sick, is much more powerful than if you were vaccinated with Pfizer or Moderna. Yeah. By, like, like a multiples of immunity. A lot of different things, data points coming so out of many. Israel, some of which are harder to interpret in some ways. Obviously, they did have a second wave, even though they had been so heavily vaccinated in terms of an overall percentage of the population. Uh, but hospitalizations, thankfully, there, uh, you know, were, were far lower given how many people had been vaccinated. That said, uh, I, I don't know how to interpret all that data. I'll leave it to Gottlieb to, to, to tell us what it all means. The one way it does come together, though, in terms of what the market's view of it is companies are, are trying to figure out a way to navigate through this without really restricting a lot of activity, without really creating the, you know, the, the conditions that would lead to, to further outright shutdowns. And so, I mean, if you look at the way the market is traded, it doesn't really think things are coming to a halt again. It's a matter of just the, the, the cadence of, of how growth proceeds. From right. And we'll get to how this all flows into Gap and Dell and HP and Peloton and Workday. Uh, but first, Steve Leisman has Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester. Morning again, Steve. Carl, good morning. Thanks very much. Uh, we are joined by Loretta Mester, the Cleveland Fed President. Loretta, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks, Steve. Great to be with you. Yeah, let's uh, talk where uh, those guys uh, kind of left off, which is this idea of uh, the next steps for Fed policy. And I-, I guess the test that you guys have put off is this test of substantial further progress on both sides of the mandate, inflation and employment. So tell me, are we there yet? Yeah, well, Steve, thanks for pointing to the forward guidance we get gave, because that's the way I look at policy and where we are. So I'm comfortable that we are basically there. I think on inflation, you can make a very good argument that we have made substantial further progress. In fact, we're well over 2% at this point. Some of that um, won't last, but, but some of it might. And we've also made a lot of very good progress on the employment side. Um, we still see the number of jobs lower than it was in February of 20. Uh, 20 before the crisis uh, hit, but we've certainly made substantial further progress since December um, when we put that forward guidance out. So I'm comfortable that we're basically there. And now it's a question of communicating what the policy stance is regarding our asset purchases and making sure that we do it in a way that is well, um, you know, forecasted and well telegraphed so that the how has been doing and the whole committee has been doing is making sure that we communicate our policy stance, where we see policy going um, and our outlook. So you're on national television with a free reign to communicate where that policy is going. Um, Tell me about your thoughts about when this uh, taper process ought to begin and how long it ought to go. All right. So thanks, Steve. So you know, my, I'm comfortable if we begin to talk about, you know, what our plans are in September and then we start tapering sometime this year. I'd like to see those asset purchases taper down so that they're completed by the middle of next year. I think there's no urgency that we do it. I think we're in a good spot um, with regards to where the economy is. We, we can talk about Delta as being a risk to the outlook, 
But right now, I think the asset purchases, we just don't need the same kind of accommodation that we needed at the height of the crisis. And I'm comfortable that we've met our uh, conditions for, as we articulated the forward guidance. So tapering to start sometime this year, um, tapering to, you know, asset purchases to end middle of next year. But would you mind talking about the evolution of your thinking about inflation? When we spoke in June, you weren't all that concerned. You you, you seem to suggest that you weren't sure if, if, if this was permanent. It looked more transitory to you then. Uh, a couple months later, has your view on that changed? Well, I think that permanent transitory probably isn't a, a good way to explain my views on inflation. What I'm looking at is whether some of those uh, – COVID-related increases in prices, and we've seen that in a number of places, some of the supply constraints, whether they're going to linger enough and stay on long enough that they actually get embedded into inflation expectations and then become an inflation, higher inflation under, on the underlying trend inflation, those, those core inflation measures, that, if you will, that we'd like to look at to sort of give a sense of where the where the inflation, underlying inflation rate is going. Right now, all of the people I talk to and businesses are saying that, you know, we thought that those supply constraints were going to ease off by now. And now it's all changed that they see those kind of supply conditions and higher prices, their input prices lingering until next year or even later in some cases. So I think those higher prices in some of those components will, will stay um, a bit longer than we originally expected. And that could feed into inflation expectations in a way that is not consistent with our 2% mandate. So that's what I'm, I'm watching, is whether that those kind of one-of price increases become embedded in people's expectations about prices continuing to rise. That's where I think we'll, we'll have to really take a hard look to see if that's happening. So far, we've seen some increases in measures of underlying inflation, but we haven't seen that be sustained. So again, I'm very watchful on the inflation side. And you know, your original question, has my view changed? Is yes, the evidence suggests that some of those higher prices could linger for longer than expected. Do, do you feel like when you say you will take a hard look, do you anticipate now that inflation may need to be addressed by raising rates sooner than you expected? Well, not yet. I mean, my baseline outlook is still that inflation will move back down as some of those, you know, supply constraints ease. Um, but I think it's up in the air now about when that timing will be. I'm concentrating now first on sort of the asset part, asset purchase part of our policy. If we complete that by the middle of next year, then we'll be able to sort of take a look at what the incoming data suggests about the strength of the, of the economy, both on the inflation employment side and on the inflation side. And then we'll have, have time to assess when that first rate increase, increase would be appropriate. But right now, the focus in my policy is on what to do with the asset purchase program. Then we'll, we can consider raising interest rates at the appropriate time. And again, I'll point out that we'll, I'm going to be guided by the guidance we gave in our statement that we continue to give in our statement about what those conditions for that first rise in the interest rate would be, which is, you know, inflation at 2% and moving above and employment at our maximum employment 
mandate. So again, the forward guidance really is guiding where my policy views are. Back in June, you gave a speech about uh, the need to, or your, your suggestion that we need to incorporate financial stability into thinking about the setting of monetary policy. Beyond the theoretical ideas in that paper, I want to ask you about the situation right now. Are you concerned that we have issues of financial stability that are made worse by what's going on with a wide open Fed policy and the amount of liquidity it's put out there? Well, we have added added a lot of liquidity, but some of my concerns about financial stability are longer run issues in terms of do we have the kind of (laughs) insights we'd like in the non-bank financial sector? We saw those disruptions in the Treasury markets that really necessitated the Fed to move in very aggressively at the start of the pandemic because of some of the issues in the Treasury market and some longer, you know, underlying issues and sort of how the Treasury market functions. So I think those are the concerns I have now. I do think that, you know, we have frothy uh, real estate prices. That's an area where I'm, you know, looking at. I don't think there's a, a bubble necessarily, but I do think that the liquidity that our asset purchases are adding are not helping necessarily that situation. And they could be adding to further frothiness in that market. That's something I'm looking at. And leverage, especially in, in uh, that- some of the markets, the, the junk bond markets is is high. And so, again, not not really at a point where monetary policy has to react to it, but something I'm going to be watching. Does that, I was just going to ask, does that motivate your desire to, to begin this taper and remove some of the accommodation that that is is uh, is providing the idea that you have concerns about the frothiness in some of these markets? Not not really. It really is being driven by the looking at the macro economy and, and how far we've come since we said the forward guidance in terms of substantial prices. We've made very good progress in the labor market. Um, some of the pr- pr- problems in the labor market now are supply related, not demand related. I can tell you that many, many across all sectors um, in the fourth district, which is where I'm from, all the firms are saying it's very hard to get labor. Um, so that's a supply side. There's some mismatching in the labor market. And on the inflation side, you know, we're well above 2%. If you look at a, a backward looking five year average, inflation and core inflation, PC inflation are above 2%. So again, you know, we've met the criteria just on the macro side for wanting to start that taper. We only have a few seconds left. I want to ask you very quickly. It seems like it's implicit in what you're saying that you do not have concerns that the Delta variant and the way it's spreading around the country are going to dramatically undermine uh, either the economic progress we've seen so far or your forecast for growth in the months ahead. Yeah, I mean, Delta is certainly uh, a concern. I mean, it's a public health concern. And as we've seen in this whole uh, pandemic, you know, what happens with the economy depends on what happens with the virus. I think things are a little bit different now because, vac- you know, we have the vaccination. And so, you know, I'm hoping that everyone gets vaccinated because that's our best defense against Delta. The firms in my district, I've talked to them, you know, we do a lot of outreach. You know, there's a lot of concern about Delta. There's some tapering, maybe pushing out a little bit of some of the, the, the plans they had to bring their staff fully back into their uh, offices, but it really hasn't changed their outlook. They're still 
you know, seeing strong demand out there. And I, at this point, that's my forecast as well, that it, you know, nothing is smooth. Everything is up and down. Um, but we've learned to kind of navigate the virus. And I think that's really been true across uh, businesses and households. I think we've learned. But again, the vaccination is the key here to making sure that we can maintain the progress we've made um, over the past several months. Loretta Mester, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Um, next time, I hope we do it in, uh, in Jackson Hole. But, but this was uh, just great. Thanks very much. Thanks, Steve. Carl, back to you. Uh, Steve, uh, thanks for all your hard work leading into this weekend, uh, bringing us so much important commentary. That's our Steve Leisman. It was interesting, guys, to listen to Mester talk about the notion that these supply constraints could linger for a while. Because think about just this week, uh, Toyota's uh, chip supplier saying this could last through 2022. Cisco last week, Taiwan Semi hiking prices 10 percent. It all feeds into the micro as well as the macro. Absolutely. Um, And it's not something that's very susceptible on either side to Fed policy, you know, turning of the dial. But um, it definitely would keep the inflation uh, readings elevated beyond what they're uh, what they're comfortable with. You know, if you did look at the inputs in the latest reported this morning, uh, PCE inflation numbers, it still does look like a lot of reopening effects. It's still restaurants and hotels largely uh, still the auto issue is kind of creating that overshoot versus longer-term trends. So there's still the ability for Jay Powell and everybody else to say, look, this stuff is going to work its way through to some degree. Um, And that's why I do think, you know, she said, look, we're basically there. That was her quote. Um, So how Powell uh, kind of reacts to that will be the interesting. All right. Uh, We'll get through some of the corporate results this morning. Maybe we'll take a look at some of the eco data. And, of course, Powell speaks uh, just after 10 a.m. Eastern time. Futures green on this Friday. Don't go away. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create, like Olu Shehi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. The NYSE and the NASDAQ each about to observe a moment of silence, paying respects to the U.S. service members and Afghans who were killed in the Kabul airport attack.
Looking at this morning's leaders before the market uh, formal open, Brown Foreman and Gap topping that list along with some energy names. The opening bell is just minutes away. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Shares of Peloton are going to be down in the pre-market, at least. They were down a lot more, actually, after market yesterday when the company did report a wider-than-expected loss. Its paid digital subscription numbers were also short of forecasts of the analysts who followed the company. Peloton also announcing it will cut the price of its flagship bike by 400 bucks. And in a filing this morning, Peloton now told, tells us it's been subpoenaed by the government. And it's actually the DOJ and also includes the Department of Homeland Security for documents related to reporting of injuries associated with its products. Also says the SEC is looking into related public disclosures. All we got, guys, yesterday was an internal controls update at the end of the press release, um, talking, referring to their upcoming annual report. Uh, there it was an immaterial discrepancy they were talking about in year-end physical inventory counts. But it remains to be seen how people are going to respond to this additional disclosure we got with the filing this morning. You know... It was actually a narrower loss right now than it was at the immediate reaction to the, you know, lower guidance on yes. cash flow and things like that after the close. So we'll see. I mean, the stock's already, you know, it's lost a third of its value from the highs. It's been kind of trying to go sideways a little bit like a lot of these, you know, classic pandemic pull forward type plays. But uh, super expensive stock. I mean, the bulls are out there defending it based on 2023 revenue multiples and things like that. Yeah, B of A uh, does upgrade, and that's really what brought it off the early morning lows. We think price cuts will open new layers of demand for several years, uh, given their strong conviction on the tread um, and still low churn. Uh, We are upgrading to buy Target 138 out of uh, B of A. Interesting, the average number of workouts per sub, 19.9 per month month versus 26 in Q1. So people who have it already are using it less. Yeah, and of course it has been the key, one of the key plays for the stay-at-home economy. And the question continues to be what kind of rates it will see uh, as we do some sort of return, which again remains to be seen as well because we talk about it so often in terms of how many people are really going back to the office and how often are they actually going. But it is interesting that you know the street wants to value it on the content, on the subs, right? So that's why the lower price is not necessarily seen as, uh, you know, kind of a negative. Right. The hardware, not necessarily the, the problem. Meanwhile, where is the multiple, Mike? I mean, what are we talking about here? I mean, they're not really, on a bottom line basis, going to make too much money. Right. Um, you know, I looked at one report that says, well, you know, 15 times, you know, kind of a blended for the sum of the parts. Uh but, but it's mostly on, like, kind of gross profit uh, or, or revenue in 2023. So you have to be creative in terms of how you, how you value it. I think it's honestly, it's just kind of like this brand that it's a bet on the, uh, on the staying power of the brand and the fact that they're going to own this area for a while. And, and, you know, it's interesting, you know, a firm often linked to it, um, not necessarily uh, looking like it's going to be hurt too bad, at least this morning on the, on the news yesterday. Yeah. They huge, finance a lot of the money. Huge part of a, a firm's uh, revenue base, for sure, uh, is Peloton. Let's get to the opening bell on this Friday morning, the CNBC real-time exchange of the big board. It's U.K.-based used car seller Kazoo celebrating its listing on the NYSE. At the NASDAQ, it is robotics company uh, 
uh, Berkshire Gray. Other big mover this morning has been Gap. Uh, 70 cents beats 46. Revenue ahead. Comps up three, up 12 on a two-year stack. Athleta up 13 and Banana up 41, which uh, got some people's attention. They do raise the guide. Uh, see full-year revenue uh, in the low 30s prior 21 to 25. Retail all week long, guys. Yeah, it's been. been it's been mixed. Of course, we know what happened with Nordstrom. Uh, that stock down sharply. Williams Sonoma, uh, Best Buy, quite positive. Uh, Dick Sporting Goods, quite positive. And Gap uh, moving higher. Although again, it's interesting. Having done the closing bell yesterday, Mike, I know yeah, how right. all these stocks were moving after hours. Gap was up more than it actually has opened up. Uh, and as you pointed out, Peloton is down less than it looked like at least aftermarket. But they're comparing to 2019 numbers as well. And and clearly, Athleta and uh, and Old Navy are the are the star performers, but the declines at Gap have uh, have lessened as well. Still declining. I think it was about 10 percent versus 19, if I recall, but uh, but a lesser uh, decline overall. And uh, I think 33 percent of overall revenues came from online, which was down from 40 percent in the last quarter. Yeah, there's, I guess just the sense that, the, you know, the ongoing store closures for various the concepts have, have gotten to a point and the uh, you know, the online sales reached a threshold where it's, it's definitely still relevant. And Athleta, you know, for years people were like, wow, you know, people love Lulu. What's it, what about Athleta? It was just too small necessarily to, to, to be reflected in the valuation. So it's, it's where, but tremendous separation in retail, right? I mean, the dollar stores uh, get, getting pounded. Anybody that can't pass along any prices, if you're in apparel at home goods or sporting goods, it seems like things are okay. Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of the discounters had been getting a wave of bullish commentary from the advanced SNAP benefits. Yeah. Uh, the thinking was that lower-end consumers would have a little more to spend, but then the, the shipping and the logistics and the raw material costs in a business that's historically low margin yeah. uh, completely overwhelmed that narrative this week. Yeah, when the whole brand is value and we're right. going to keep a lid on price. It's very difficult to maneuver. I also have been, been noticing Target, obviously not reporting this week, but uh, what an amazing stock, just vast outperformance against Walmart. But it has really kind of rolled uh, a fair bit if you looked at, uh, you know, the, the, the one year. So since mid-July, just a lot of these kind of cross currents in the cyclical parts of the market, you know, levered to the uh, consumer. Uh, it has been a little bit off the boil. And a lot of the bounces this week in the banks and in some of the industrials just brought you up to where we were trading, you know, a few weeks ago. And so it hasn't necessarily been that clear a message of the market. It's just hesitant. We had to wait for, you know, what Powell's going to say and uh, and just exactly how strong we can expect this kind of echo reopening or whatever we're going to call it to be at this point. Keeping an eye on shares of Dell and HP Inc. or HPQ, the symbol there as well, both reported after the bell uh, yesterday. Um, both are down, though, uh, HP getting the brunt of it, in part perhaps because of Morgan Stanley's decision to uh, say that they, they prefer Dell over HPQ, and they uh, downgrade HPQ to an equal weight this morning, no longer seeing a path to near-term multiple expansion for that company's stock, given lower earnings quality and execution headwinds. Uh, both have been beneficiaries, of course, in part of stay-at-home, the growth of the home office, the upgrade of technology that's come along uh, with that, whether it be printers and or, of course, uh, laptops and, and computers of all types. Uh, don't forget, VMware going to be, their 83% ownership going to be spun. Uh, that's a key here. And by the way, we did get a look at VMware, which was a bit disappointing from the Dell re uh, report, and that stock is down um, actually more than both of the others, uh, down almost 6%, Mike, at this point, yeah. is VMware. But that, uh, they're going to have an analyst meeting, I think it's September 23rd at Dell, of course, to go into the details about 
uh, it's been we've been waiting some time for that will then create obviously two solely public uh, companies, yeah. Dell and VM. Been a, obviously a very kind of noisy, you know, interrelated uh, securities. Yes. Probably has uh, has kept the multiple. Although if, if Morgan Stanley, if they don't think that uh, Hewlett Packard can have multiple expansion above eight times forward earnings. Right. I mean, that's a seven, eight times. It's like 12% free cash flow yield. It shows you that market's just saying this is kind of, you know, a no-growth runoff business uh, type of thing. Right or wrong, that's the way the market uh, sort of treats it for the moment. Yeah, they're looking at inventories as well. Their data show, inventory data shows a 530% increase at HP over the last 10 weeks, three times pre-COVID, which stands out from other vendors and further confirms it will take HP several quarters, they say, to get back into a position to grow in line with the broader PC market. So, you know, I thought that was weird, since all we do is talk about shortages of hardware. Yeah, I, that, that, that you have a 500% jump in channel inventory, uh, the three times COVID, uh, by the way, that yeah. trend. So uh, HP is going to, I mean, we're pennies away from a six-month low or so in an era where yes. corporate IT budgets are obviously feeling their oats. Right. You would think that the moment was there for, for, for them to actually uh, capitalize a little bit better. It's, it's still a $34 billion company. It's good size, but it's, it's definitely kind of set aside, uh, even beyond some of the old tech that has rallied pretty well, actually. If you look at things like you know, Oracle, and, uh, they've, they've done fine. A lot of attention on oil uh, this weekend as we go into uh, a period in which Tropical Storm Ida is scheduled to hit uh, southern Louisiana around Sunday afternoon, around 2 o'clock, depending on the track is still a bit early. But uh, maximum sustained winds right now, about 60 miles an hour. Of course, Sunday is also the 16th anniversary of the landfall of Hurricane Katrina. Um, but you do have a lot of the leadership centered around oil and not gas. Highest since December of 2018. Yeah, and the energy stocks got super, super oversold when we from June into into the, this month's low. Uh, you know, essentially people saying that reflation trade is over, and they were uh, big beneficiaries of it. So it's rebuilding a little bit. Um, you know, high 60s for uh, for crude oil still seems like the recent highs at 75 are pretty safe, but uh, it is helping. Uh, a little bit here in terms of, um, you know, leadership today. I, th- I still think it's noisy. We're dealing with a lot of stuff. 20% year-to-date gains in the S&P 500. Obviously, we've doubled since the March 2020 low. Um, it just feels, you know, 4,500 in the S&P is triple that ceiling of the market that we had in place for, you know, 10 years after 2000. And so there's a perception out there we've come a long way. But, you know, the P multiple of the S&P has actually come down this year. And so earnings have just been, you know, surging so much that it's created this pretty fat cushion right. under the market for now. And financial conditions are so easy. We'll see if, you know, if changes have <laughs> power, but that, that, that it's sort of been hard to say, oh, we need some tough love on the multiple because it hasn't happened. No, but Mike, I mean, I do go back to earnings season, the heart of it, of course, and the, the mega caps. When you look at whether it was Apple, Facebook, Amazon, or certainly Alphabet, Microsoft, those numbers were incredible yes. in terms of top line growth and frankly, the earnings uh, as well. But the reaction not much. No. Uh, no, the market kind of got there ahead of the reports, you would think, in a lot of these. And um, it seems like for the third and fourth quarter, arguably, the numbers are still a little bit modest in terms yeah. of expected growth. So you probably see a similar beat rate. But I think it just tells you about the psychology of the market, which is we've seen the best in terms of acceleration rate. Now it's about who's got the sustainability. And we're going to have to transition from stronger to longer in terms of the bull case that we have you know, kind of a more durable expansion than, it, than a boom time one. Yeah. Alphabet, by the way, is worth mentioning. It did, I mean, it had maybe the strongest of all those numbers. It is up 62, yeah. almost 63% this year. Did lag a bit in 2020, 
um, but made up uh, made up for it. Guys, we got to look at China as well. Uh, you know, the latest sort of story coming out of there. Eunice Yun was reporting on it earlier uh, for uh, Squawk Box. Uh, the journal reporting as well. Uh, new rules would prohibit Internet firms holding a swath of user-related data from listing abroad. Um, and, you know, that could affect certainly, I mean, when you think about ByteDance, that's a private company, by the way. Who knows where the market value is these days? I'm sure it's been moving around in some way, although they haven't necessarily done anything that would uh, a sale of, or a, 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 a stock uh, from one party to another to sort of establish that. It had been as high as I'd heard, over $400 billion at one point. But ByteDance wouldn't seem to be in a position to go public here uh, with these latest rules. And you can see it is having an impact on Alibaba. The VIE structure has been under uh, scrutiny, both here from our SEC, but also as well. The Chinese don't seem to be particularly appreciative of it any longer or allowing for it either in terms of the way so many companies in China have been able to go public here by essentially... Uh, putting it, the Caymans and contracting for the right to manage the assets right. without actually owning the assets. Yeah. yeah, you own some kind of abstract claim on the uh, on the underlying business. Although it, it's some irony, though, isn't it, though, in China saying, well, if you deal with, you know, personal consumer data, we're not going to let you go public in the U.S., whereas U.S. investors have almost zero window on anything going on yeah. in terms of the operations, let alone the consumer data that those companies possess. It's obviously a device right. to curtail that. Some of, the, right. some of the commentary out of China is remarkable. Uh, they have this cyberspace administration, uh, which they say companies must abide by ethics that should not set up algos that entice users to spend large amounts of money or spend money in a way that may disrupt public order. Amazing. I have no idea what that means, but can you imagine us ever saying anything like it? <laughs> they, well, the, the, I, I say that to to my daughter about TikTok. Yes, yeah, exactly. not, maybe you do too at like 11 o'clock, you know, when I go in there. And I'm like, <laughs> You're disrupting I, public actually, order. Actually, I've got to quote the Chinese now. It's really order. amazing because the, 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 the Chinese government has said there's all this value and in commerce going on in what they consider frivolous activity and just non-strategic. And it doesn't really build the productive capacity of the, of the country somehow. And, you know, the Nasdaq here is based on that. You know, I mean, let's be honest. Like, Facebook didn't have to exist. No, it didn't, certainly didn't have to be a trillion dollar plus company. But here it is. Might be better off if it didn't. Yeah. No, sorry, <laughs> uh, guys. A story I've been following all week is the redemption levels of, of SPACs. This is deals that close. They actually get the approval of the uh, of the holders, but. The right to redeem at $10 or $10.10 is taken advantage of by a large, vast majority of those those holders as well. And no let up here. The latest one uh, got approval LGL Systems deal with IronNet. Uh, It was approved. Guess what the redemption rate was? You guessing? 93%. 93% of the shares were redeemed. So you had 1.17 million shares left. Um, you can see the stock is up. Now, I've pointed out that in a couple of names here, we've seen investors who were shorting prior to the close of the deal only to find that there are so few shares left because of huge redemption rates that it puts them in a very difficult position to either secure a borrow and or short more or cover their short. Uh, and that has resulted in big squeezes for a couple of names. That's a trend we've been following. Um, in this case, you see not that much. Um, in part, you know, perhaps the stock had been hanging in there. But what am I talking about as to why investors are shorting these some of these names prior to close? Well, take a look at uh, XOS. Exos. Um, this was Next Gen One. This is uh, Last Mile Trucker. In fact, we had Next Gen Two. Their deal with uh, Virgin Orbit. Remember, we had Richard Branson join us on Monday. This is the first. It's back. 
Look at what happened. That's all right. Let's can we go back at least a week, guys? That's not really a, a particularly helpful uh, chart there. Um, there you can see coming right down over the last week from kind of 10. Um, we got initial numbers in terms of a very large redemption there as well. But we didn't get a lot more until an AK this morning, which the number that jumped out at me, and I've talked about this as well, these companies expected taking a lot of cash from the SPAC holders in addition to the pipe. In this case, you had a $220 million pipe. Somebody didn't fund for $4 million of it, so you took on $216.7 million. You had uh, transaction costs as well of $55 million. And the total they took in was $216 million. So they took in less than the entire of the pipe because the redemptions were so high, and after transaction costs, there was nothing else from the actual SPAC holders, and you can see what's happened to the stock. Mike, I'm just keeping an eye on this. Obviously, we've talked a lot about I mean, I did SPAC out. That was in February. We saw SPACs decline dramatically in terms of issuance. Things picked up a bit, but this is the latest iteration. We're so many trading below and or at 10. The decision to redeem. At the same time, though, the deals get approved. Sponsors, I guess, are somewhat happy. By the way, the key here is the sponsor's still probably making money on that deal, even at six bucks. That's amazing. Because of their sponsor shares. Yeah, I mean, that's why I guess so many people see it just as a better mousetrap. You have the optionality in there. It's all baked in. What's the number? I recently looked at how many SPACs are still looking for deals. I think it might be 300. Yes, there's a lot. And then that gets back to the competition between them, these SPAC-offs, as they call them. And, you know, is the sponsor really inclined to actually walk away from a deal, even though it may be at a valuation that they don't necessarily think is a great one for their underlying holders? Because they can benefit way down, not from 10, down, down to four on the, on the stock price oftentimes. Right. And so does that, you know, is it the best way to go about finding a deal when yeah. your sponsor can benefit even though you're buying in at 10, which right. is why we may be getting all these redemptions? Uh, guys, in Fang news, Apple uh, is obviously the lead announcing it has resolved a class action lawsuit from U.S. developers over its App Store policies. Josh Lipton has the latest over the Nasdaq. Morning, Josh. So, Carl, one big fight for Apple now looks to be over. Apple's announcing that pending official court approval here, it has resolved a class action lawsuit from U.S. developers over its App Store policies. The part of the settlement that's attracting the most attention here, developers can now share purchase options with their users outside of their iOS app. So, for example, a developer can email a customer with that customer's permission that they can make a purchase with alternative payment methods. Potentially important. If they can convince a lot of their customers to pay them directly and not Apple, that means they can keep more money, obviously. How many more customers are actually going to choose that option, though? Well, of course, that remains to be seen. Apple will also create a new $100 million fund to assist small developers, and it's going to maintain that lower 15% commission for developers earning under $1 million in the store for at least three years. Bottom line, Apple, we know, is facing criticism for its App Store policies and practices. So will these changes help to placate critical lawmakers on Capitol Hill? Well, not all of them, clearly. Senator Richard Blumenthal saying in response to this news, today's move only adds to the momentum and further exposes rampant anti-competitive abuses in the app markets. However, Apple can now say it has reached a deal with its community of smaller developers. In other words, it reached a deal here with the 99% of the developers that actually pay Apple a commission. It's only the big companies now, so Apple's going to argue the Epics and Spotify's of the world that still aren't happy. Back to you all. 
Fascinating uh, development. We'll watch it. Not moving the stock a lot, but interesting policy change over at Apple. Josh, thanks. Uh, Still to come, the Fed chair and his remarks to the Jackson Hole virtual symposium set to begin in just about 15 minutes. We're going to watch that as we go to break. Obviously, a lot of attention on treasuries today uh, as we got the personal income and spending data. Uh, Spending uh, three-tenths prior 1-1, which means the Delta variant really did slow down the consumer, even as PCE deflator up 4-2 year-on-year is a 30-year high. Back in a moment. It's a challenge many of the nation's restaurants are facing in the midst of this historic labor crunch should they require their employees to take the COVID vaccine. Kate Rogers joins us with more on the mandate dilemma. Morning, Kate. Good morning, Carl. In New York City, Philippe Massoud's Illili restaurants did not have a choice. Mayor Bill de Blasio's Key to New York City program mandates restaurant workers and patrons be vaccinated for indoor settings. The company is short 20 workers as it is and lost several over the policy. It's exacerbating the situation, you know, and and uh, and then, you know, you know, you, in addition to all that, you're dealing with the surge of the Delta variant. Uh, which also create its own complexities, you know. So we're getting hit a bit from everywhere. Others have concerns with the uncertainty around mandates and fear losing more workers over such a requirement. David Barr said between his 44 KFC and Capriati's franchises in Alabama and Georgia, he's already short 200 workers from being fully staffed. We've decided to encourage versus mandate vaccinations. Uh, both because of the labor force, tight labor force today, and we don't desire to lose potentially another 20, 30% of our employees, as well as just a policy standpoint of looking from D to DC or the uh, state house as to what the policy should be regarding mandates. Larger restaurant chains have mostly been silent so far on mandating vaccines. Earlier this month, McDonald's did delay its return to office to October and said it would require its U.S. corporate employees to be fully vaccinated. Chipotle's CFO told CNBC this week the company was in active talks on the topic and wanted to seek input from its workers. Both companies, though, have encouraged the shot. Back over to you. Fascinating. Uh, very tough decision by some of those business leaders. Kate, thank you. That's our Kate Rogers. When we come back, uh, the countdown to Fed Chair Powell's Jackson Hole speech with the Dow up 110, S&P 4485. Just a few minutes away from uh, Fed Chair Powell's Jackson Hole speech. Uh, Bullard's on the tape right now, guys, sort of pointing to what Mike was saying a moment ago. That is the purchases, in his view, don't have much value. Uh, markets have largely priced it in. Morgan Stanley says... Um, with the details around the taper now in hand, there's no need for Powell to use this as a signaling opportunity. Uh, the Fed has delivered on communication. Markets are well prepped. All that's left is for the data to give the green light. Right, which also will inform the specifics of the timing. I don't think anything that's being said right now by all these Fed officials saying let's get on with it means at the September meeting they give you the template and they say it's on. Could be November. So I think we have to, you know, maybe that's the the zone of uncertainty in there in terms of timing. And I think then then it becomes about uh, trying to emphasize constantly that this does not mean higher rates right away after this process works through the the taper process, because that that probably is the thing that really uh, would, would put the market on edge more than. The, the rundown of, uh, of the bond buying program. And of course, it all is, is all is about what the economic numbers are doing in relation to it. You know, 2018 was perceived as a problem uh, or is perceived that the Fed got too tight and stayed that way on autopilot because the economy was kind of 
plateauing and weakening. And so it's not it's, it's about the underlying conditions as well. Oh, man, I just given all the commentary we've had, I'm surprised we're just not ending it today. <laughs> no, that's the thing, right? Like, Which is why he'll probably sound dovish yeah. on well, a net basis. It yeah. is amazing. And Leslie brought this up yesterday. It wasn't that long ago. The phrase not thinking about yeah. thinking about was pretty common. And here we are. It's very right? true. It's a, it's a long way they, they've had to help us travel. Yeah, which absolutely speaks to how fast things got better in terms of the underlying numbers through the, the spring and into the summer, uh, because we didn't anticipate that level of, of improvement. Probably. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 